Welcome everyone to the podcast Underqualified Critics, wherein me, Kushi, and me, Morgan, give our opinions on various topics and forms of media and entertainment. Today's episode, if you haven't read the title, is delving into the life of Princess Diana. What was her life as a royal really like? How did those around her treat her? And how did she handle her challenging life? A little backstory on us. We're two teenagers from a small town in Kentucky who share a love for all things media, conspiracy, and current times. We're juniors in high school, and we have known each other for four years. In that time, we realized that we share a ton of common interests, or more accurately, obsessions. Recently, one of these obsessions has been to read more about the most famous royal family, but more specifically, the life of Princess Diana, the woman who changed the history of the British monarchy. Okay, so let's talk about this for a minute. We did just recently begin officially learning more about Princess Diana and her life, but we've been fans of her for a long time. We have. However, we only knew the most basic facts about her and her life. She married young, her marriage was unhappy, she was an icon to all that knew her and the world as a whole, and she died under mysterious and tragic circumstances. But this didn't even scratch the surface. There was so much more that we'd yet to learn. In order to do this, we decided to go to the best source available, Diana herself. We used a Ouija board. No, we didn't. Well, yeah, but that's not important. Anyway, we decided to learn more about Diana by hearing her story directly from her by reading the biography, Diana, Her True Story, in her own words. So, obviously, part of this story is told directly by Diana, per the title. By using direct quotes from what were, at the time of their recording, secret tapes, the author puts together an in-depth analysis of Princess Diana's life. As Diana unfortunately couldn't be around to tell her entire story, the other half is told by the author himself, Andrew Morton, who elaborates more on the princess's life, giving more details and describing her emotions on how she felt throughout the most difficult years of her life. With this new information, the most private moments of Princess Diana's life are revealed, which in turn adds onto the information already available to the public. With the combination of the two, Princess Diana's story is completely told, a fine line of sadness and happiness, tragedy and triumph. Though we only have speculation as to why Diana chose to be interviewed for this account of her life, we can assume, based on general information as well as details of the exact timeline given in the book, that Diana wanted to have her true story told untainted by the royal family press machine. She wanted her story to be widely heard, reaching anyone from the general public to the queen herself. Additionally, it is stressed that Diana wanted other women, whether common or royal, to know that they are not the only ones who are struggling. For the longest time, Diana was assumed to be self-obsessed and vain, wasting the royal family's money on luxurious clothing and the like. This was mostly an idea planted by the critical British media, However, it stuck with certain citizens. Little did they know, Diana had a certain penchant as well as desire to help those most downtrodden by society. Yet, how could they know this, when the only public face that she put forth was the one forced upon her by the royal family? And though she suffered silently for years, Diana found her breaking point in the form of Charles's smear campaign of her during their nasty divorce. Charles and his closest friends, which Diana referred to as the unsavory high-growth set, made it their mission to portray Charles as the good guy of the marriage, pinning everything wrong with it on Diana. In answer to this, Diana chose to have her true story told once and for all. Next up, 
a closer look into how exactly Diana's story was told and how Morton conveyed the events of her life to the reader. Andrew Morton took quite an interesting approach in telling Diana's story, one that personally I had never seen. Had you ever seen anything like this, Kushi? I actually haven't, and that was one of the reasons that I was so drawn to this novel in the first place. The method of storytelling was so unorthodox, yet it fits so well with Diana and her story. Right, I thought the same thing. Due to the fact that Diana was, largely, robbed of her words while in the royal family, it was refreshing to hear her story in such a manner. Exactly. For those who haven't read the book, in the beginning, the readers are presented with Diana's quotes about her life and her own point of view which is largely different from the other autobiographies we have read or any other genres. I think the reason why Morton decided to take this method of her starting first was because he wanted the audience to read her emotions and thoughts head on. After her part was over, he then dived into a more thorough analysis of Diana's life from beginning to end to really make sure he provided extra details of Charles's actions, as well as the times in which the royal family, her own family, and everyone that she impacted were involved in her journey. I think it's also important to mention that at the time of its initial publication, this book did not include these direct quotes. For many years, the public as well as the royal family were unaware of Diana's involvement until after her death when the book was republished, this time explicitly stating her involvement. That is also a part of why this format is so shocking. Groundbreaking information was given about the private life of Princess Diana, only for it to end up being directly from the Princess of Wales herself. No one expected that, and it was doubly tragic to find out only after she had died. Considering Diana's direct quotes were a strategy all on their own, which we have already discussed, we will focus our main analysis on Morton's own writing. One of the foremost strategies seen within the duration of the novel is Morton's third-person omniscient point of view. After providing a detailed account of the stages of Diana's life in each chapter, Morton would close out the chapter by tying in the ending with a direct quote from Diana. He would describe her emotions and thought process in such detail that it was as though he had experienced them himself, which led the reader to a more intimate understanding of Diana's trials and tribulations. Yeah, the author's point of view does inherently give the reader his own explanation as to why he decided to team up with the Princess of Wales to give her own account of such difficulty in her life with her marriage to Charles. Without this direct insight to Diana's mind, no one could ever truly understand understand the princess, the princess's thought process and actions in her unpleasant and sometimes dire situation. Towards the end of the book, the point of view changes into a first-person account of the repercussions of the book on the author after Diana's death. Of course, there was much outrage from the royal family in response to Morton's novel as it portrayed them in an unsavory way. However, Morton was not particularly bothered. His job was to tell Diana's truth, and he knew he had done it well. With this direct insight to Morton's thoughts and feelings, the reader gets a glimpse into how much Diana had meant to him and Diana's impact overall. Not to mention in the afterword, Morton lists all the people that were affected because of her tragic death, but he focuses more on her two sons, Prince William and Harry. Since her two boys were technically one of the few people whom she really trusted and could differ from Charles and his parents, even though they were his blood, Morton gave a detailed description as to how the two young princes, reacted to their mother's death. Sometimes they found it extremely difficult to process what had just happened, but in other ways they learned to carry Diana's memory and honor with them throughout their life. 
Due to the emotion involved in Diana's tragic story, one can only assume that the main appeals by the author would be to the emotions as well, which Morton successfully conveys. However, while tugging on the heartstrings and mentioning the near-constant sadness and misery of Diana's life, the author also does something that is quite difficult. He manages to get the reader to feel without pitying her. This can be attributed to the earnest account he provides of Diana. He tells her story, the good, the bad, and the ugly, while including Diana's distinct spirit in all accounts. Diana was never a victim of her situation. She acknowledged her own faults and still soldiered on despite every reason not to. This, combined with the tragedy of her story, causes the readers to be both sympathetic and empathetic towards Diana's story, while getting a clear view of Diana's own feelings as well. The reader, more or less, feels the same emotions Diana did due to the vivid description of events, from her sadness due to her failing marriage, to her loneliness within the royal family, to her rage at Charles and Camilla's affair, as well as her desperation to be heard and seen by her husband, which led her to multiple suicide attempts. This empathetic link between Diana and the reader leads to an overall emotional story. And by Morton and Diana creating such a faithful bond in hopes of making sure her book and time spent writing her life story is protected from anyone, especially from the royal family, from finding out. It also enables the audience to have such a distinct trust for Morton and the ideas he presents in the book. Morton constantly is referring back to Diana's side of the story, when she first delivered her own quotes, which gives readers such a descriptive image of her memories of the princess's life, whether he is mentioning her childhood, her marriage, or life after her divorce. As Morton reinforces trust within himself to the audience, Diana also does the same, but by crediting her reliability because of the criticism she received along with her title as Princess of Wales. For example, all the negative media attention she was receiving can be attributed to the fact that she was newly wedded to the prince, and her royal fairy tale-like life was broadcasted by the media for the public to see. So she knew the harsh reality of her life, as she had to live with the thought of pleasing everyone, which allows the audience to feel for her in all, for all the reasons as to why her marriage was being destroyed publicly and privately. This also carries on to how adding princess before your name does not always guarantee that you will live the most perfect life that is presented in children's books. Morton appeals to the reader's logic in a distinct way. Because he is recounting true events, there is an obvious cause and effect pattern which helps to explain events possibly not understood by the reader previously. Because the reader also has, more or less, a direct line into Diana's mind, we are also led through her thought and logic process, which provided an explanation as well as the true story behind some of her actions, opinions, and decisions. Without this guide through Diana's logic, there will still be many events which were unclear to the reader, yet with it, there is a crystal clear view of Diana's decision-making process. Next up, we discuss the explicit information provided to us by Diana and Morton and respond to some of the topics covered in this summary of Diana's life. One of the prevailing topics throughout Diana's entire life, and therefore her autobiography, is her turbulent at best relationship with Prince Charles of Wales. The author overall describes how unhealthy and toxic the relationship was. The very foundations of their relationship were rocky. Charles and Diana first met when Charles was dating Diana's older sister, Sarah. After their fledgling relationship ended, Diana came into the picture a while later. 
Throughout their courtship, Diane was forced to refer to Charles as Sir. Shortly before their wedding, Charles made a remark about Diana's chubby waistline, which then triggered a case of bulimia so violent that Diana would fight it for years. On their honeymoon, pictures of Camilla, Charles's ex-girlfriend turned mistress, fell out of his platter. Also on the honeymoon, Charles wore cufflinks, which displayed two entwined C's, meant to be disguised as the Chanel C's, but Diana was clever enough to figure it out. Throughout their entire marriage, Charles was attached to Camilla, always showing more attention and care to her than to his wife. A prime example of this is the stark contrast between Charles's sympathy of both ladies' experience with the press. Early in their relationship, Charles remarked to Diana about poor Camilla Parker Bowles, who had four people from the press around her. At the same time, Diana had upwards of 30. When Diana tried to talk to Charles about her struggles with the press, he flippantly dismissed them, one time answering Diana's stressed tears with, oh God, what is it? Of course, with Diana's influx of media attention, Charles was overtaken with the green-eyed monster we know as jealousy. Used to being the censor of attention, Charles had a hard time adjusting when millions flocked out to see Diana rather than him. Although he joked about it publicly, in private he crucified Diana for it, unwilling to hear her reasoning that she had never wanted any of it. This disgusted both myself and Cushy. Cushy, do you remember, we texted each other nearly every day talking about how much we couldn't stand both Charles and Camilla. We did, and although we always knew Charles was awful to Diana, to have it placed in front of you in no uncertain terms was absolutely disgusting. Oh, 100%. And I think it's safe to say, as two girls who both relate to certain parts of Diana's feelings, as most people probably could, to see this woman thrown into the eyes of the entire world as a star member of one of the most influential families ever, and to see her have no support, no guidance, or even validation was terrible. At every turn, she was trying her best, trying to conform to what the royal family wanted, and every time she did, she would be criticized more. Oh, I agree. And also, to see how Charles sp- treated her speaks volume about him. We've discussed this before, but I think we both came to the conclusion that while Charles was absolutely not blameless, he clearly can care about people based on his treatment of Camilla. Charles was raised totally out of touch with the real world. He was a literal spoiled prince allowed to do whatever he wanted with whomever he wanted with little regard for how it would affect others, and this just bled into the marriage. Absolutely. Especially when looking at the media aspect of it all, seeing how jealous he was of the suffocating attention that Diana had garnered unwillingly, it was very telling of his priorities. It was, and this total lack of support was just the icing on the cake to an already bad situation. This leads us to the next claim that is regularly discussed throughout the biography, which is how the media affected Princess Diana's image and self-respect. On top of Charles having lots of jealousy for his wife, Because of the attention she was receiving from the press and public, Diana had to maintain her image, because that was all she was known for during the first few years of her marriage, of being the most superficial princess who kept up with fashion, clothes, and being the perfect smiling little doll. News outlets, such as the Daily Mail, Daily Express, and the Daily Mirror, always intruded Diana's personal life, but they truly altered her life when it came to her bulimia. Persistent annoyance from the press trying to get anything from her added on to her already difficult eating disorder, since they were on top of, top of her appearance and physical features. Since her attention from the media was something she couldn't control, something the rest of the royal family could, to an extent, do, 
Dinah felt truly helpless when it came to the press, not knowing when she wanted the publicity to end. But I think the most unfortunate thing was that the cameras, paparazzi, and all these flashes following her from the day she was even seen with Charles in a romantic setting. And the whole thing is so heartbreaking to see unfold because she never caught a break. Right. The press was one of the biggest issues she faced within her time with the royal family, and most likely is what led to her death. I can't imagine how awful it must have been for her. She had such an unhappy life, but then, on top of everything, it was broadcast across the world. You were right, she never got a break. And even when she was officially divorced from Charles and happy with her new partner, Dodi Al-Fayed, the press was still on her like a bad rash, as she loved to say. And it eventually would lead to her untimely death. Right, I agree. And even if we ignore the fatal consequences it had for her, which, who could, really? We have to realize that the royal family wanted this to an extent. She was their star, and they would use her until her light went out. In any official event she participated in for the royal family, press were everywhere, and the event was very planned. It's no wonder that when Diana found her heart's work, her humanitarian work, another prevalent theme throughout the autobiography, that she did it with little to no press, all on her own, where she could really interact with people, to touch and to be with them. You're right. Diana was at her happiest when she was bringing joy to people in their darkest moments, which is so ironic considering she was at her darkest as well. She always mentioned how she did best with those, not to be morbid, nearest to death, and others around her said she always knew what to do and say, even if she had never met the person grieving before. It was her natural gift, and she did extraordinary things with it. Going further into humanitarian work, Diana was specifically known for working with working and connecting with patients who suffered from AIDS and HIV. One particular story that lived in Diana's heart, as well as the other readers, is the one of her friendship with Adrian Ward Jackson. Jackson was HIV positive, and as Diana made his final months better, he made Diana's life better because of their heart-to-heart conversations the two had that grew their friendship into something so beautiful. Prior to their involvement, prior to her involvement with Adrian, when she was still with Charles, Diana wanted to begin her work with AIDS and HIV patients by breaking the stigma of the false rumor that you cannot touch people with AIDS. The world got to witness Diana's true character every time she touched someone's heart. After her divorce, the princess was so heavily involved in her campaign against landmines and successfully raised awareness for this topic. As the United Nations passed a mine ban treaty, she championed such a wide range of topics, yet the goal of all of them was clear, to help people. I agree. Her story with Adrian and allowing William to meet him and see her side of the royal work as well as real life was just beyond words for me. She was so dedicated to Adrian until the end, but even her dedication to Adrian didn't stop her from helping others. One of the many days where she was staying with Adrian at the hospital, Diana found herself comforting a grieving family who had just lost their mother. The family would later go on to describe Diana as the angel sent by heaven in the place of their mother. Diana would stay in touch with the family for a while after, even writing to them once or twice. This would never work for Diana. It was what she loved to do. She connected with those in pain so easily, maybe because she was in pain herself. And it's so inspiring, yet sad to think about. She did all these good things while suffering so much internally. It takes a special person to be able to bring such joy to others while living in their own joyless world. Nearly everyone who encountered her described her as the kindest soul they'd ever met. I haven't even met her, but I'm inclined to agree. 
I think it's impossible to not read this book and not want to be Di- not want to be best friends with Diana. Oh, absolutely. The fact that she isn't in our friend group is a crime. It's a federal offense. <laughs> it's a federal offense. I agree. Yeah. Anyways, coming up, our final thoughts on Princess Diana and why Diana, her true story, in her own words, should be next up on your to-be-read list. That was pretty heavy, wasn't it? It definitely was, but I think it's important to talk about, and so much of it is still relevant today. Although Diana made the first leap in destigmatizing some of these issues, there's still work to be done. Take Prince Harry and Duchess Meghan's recent work on the same landmine issue in Africa that Diana brought attention to decades ago. Right, and although it wasn't one of her biggest platforms, Diana was still a champion of women's rights and equality, a conversation still had today. I totally agree. That's why I think it's so crucial, even decades later, to read Diana's biography. It not only gives insight to the truth of one of the most influential figures in modern history's life, but it still has a lot to say about today's issues. It does. And since we only knew the surface of her life before we even read the book, it was safe to say she was one of our role models, but now it made it seem like we knew her even though she passed before we were born. This book truly encapsulates how her husband humiliated her and made Diana seem like she was less of a woman, even to herself. It also sends a message to Charles and Camilla. We don't forgive you, and we haven't forgotten either. Y'all did Diana dirty, and the public will always remember how you treated our queen. Period. (laughs) Period. All jokes aside, I feel like I can say for the both of us that we definitely recommend it to everyone. Except for sexist men. Sexist men need not apply. Don't ruin her good name. I don't know. Maybe they'll learn something. Probably not. But we do recommend it to everyone, especially young women. While it does get into the nitty-gritty of life, it's also a beautiful story about finding value within yourself. Also, Princess Diana is just awesome. She's just awesome. That's it. End of sentence. Done. Complete. Finished. So what's our rating system for today? Our rating system for today is Faithful Husbands. I give this book a 10 out of 10 Faithful Husbands. It's going to be 10 out of 10 faithful husbands for me as well, especially considering that... They're hard to find these days. They're few and far between. But that's a topic for another episode. Yeah, write that down. Anyway, we hope that you enjoyed this episode of Underqualified Critics. Tune in next week for a definitive ranking of the songs off of Harry Styles' debut album, Harry Styles. And we hope we've made you and Princess Diana proud with this episode. With that said... We have only one more thing to say. Rest Rest in in peace peace to Princess Princess Diana. Diana. Rest Rest in in peace, love. love. Rest Rest in in peace, peace, baby cakes. It's a a shame shame you never never got got to see what Gangnam Gangnam Style style was. You would have loved loved to do the Gangnam Gangnam Style. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, we hope to see you next time on Underqualified Critics.